see. We have, well, start. I did, I did give exams back. Um, average was a little bit lower than usual. Usually it runs low, mid, 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 low to mid-70s, so a couple points lower. Uh, it was a 34.8, so use that as a comparison as to how you did. If you're doing better than that, you're doing fine. If you didn't do so well, you've got some things to look at for the next, for the next exam. Uh, one thing I do recommend is no matter how poor you did, don't go out and burn the exam. Keep it. Uh, figure out the right answers. If you work on them and there's a couple you can't find, come see me. I'll be happy to work you through finding the correct answers. When it comes to the final, it is cumulative, but the part that's cumulative is right from your first four exams. So if you burn that now, you're going to regret it when final time comes because you're going to see some of those exact questions again come final time. So figure out the right answers, look through them. Again, don't spend hours trying to find them. If you have trouble finding one, uh, don't come and let me know or you know, work with a friend in the class and see if you can find out the correct answer. But I'll be happy to, to help you with those as well. Those as well. But so, so keep them. You will want them for the, for the final. You won't be able to use them on the final. But you'll be able to study from them for half of the final exam will be these first four exams. Otherwise, we have two things due today. Um, iTunes quiz is due today. Uh, that covers the pictures from August 18th through September 5th. It's available through 6 o'clock tomorrow. So if you haven't taken it already, a bunch of people have already taken it now, uh, make sure you get that. Get that settled sometime today. And the first article review that was extended from Friday, since I was gone part of last week, is due today as well. Again, 6 o'clock tomorrow. If you're going to turn in a paper copy, you can drop it off to me after class. would be great. If not, if you're going to submit it on D2L, uh, you have until 6 o'clock tomorrow to submit it on there digitally. Homework 2 was extended and is now due on Wednesday. So homework 2 that was due today is now due on Wednesday. And the second quiz will be available starting on Friday once we finish up as we get a little further through telescopes uh, today and, and Wednesday. Those will, be, those will be due. So quiz two will be available. And then on Wednesday I'll update with the next couple of assignments coming up there, up there for you. Any questions on anything there? No, no, no. All righty. Well, uh, we have a picture of the day for today. This is a picture. What is it? That's actually a comet, a nucleus of a comet. So this is actually a comet is a big dirty snowball out in space. They come close to the sun. Material gets uh, dissolved from the surface, evaporated off the surface and expands out and gives you this great big uh, ball of bright material around it and tail stretching back which is what we see. But if we actually get in close and look at it, how close? 62 kilometers. 36 miles or so above the surface, we can really see fine detail in the comet. This was taken by the Rosetta spacecraft, and I think it was taken very recently. Was this in the last week or so? Try to remember if it says when it was taken. Not seeing it there quickly, or I'm just skimming right over it. But did it say? Taken 10 days ago. There it is. I tried to read, try to skim it too quickly. About 10 days ago it was taken. So very recent photograph. It's our first real, first real good close look at a comet from orbit. The spacecraft is actually orbiting around the comet. So we've actually now, the European Space Agency actually has a spacecraft that is orbiting around this comet. It has a lander that is planned. They're, right now they're searching for a good landing site. Probably later this year there'll be a lander that is actually going to soft land on the surface of the comet to be able to study it really 
up close. So we're going to get some much more knowledge of comets which have been known for thousands and thousands of years. Easy to see out there, but we never, until we had spacecraft that could get close to a comet, we never really knew exactly what the nucleus looked like. Um, if you look at it there, it's extremely dark. You see a few brighter patches. We think of, co of comets as a snowball. You sometimes hear them described as a dirty snowball, which is the model for them. But it's more dirty than snowball when you get to the surface. This is so dark that this is about the consistency or color of a piece of coal. That's how dark the surface is. It reflects about 4% of the light hitting it. So it's as black as you know this countertops, the surface tops here. It is that dark in terms of material. Which helps when the sunlight comes, right? Black absorbs the heat. So it's absorbing all of that energy and the ices below it will then heat up and will be able to be expelled out and will eventually form the great coma and tail around it. So I'm expecting that over the coming months we'll be able to get some other nice pictures of the comet. Uh, much more, much close-up pictures. Again, we're down here to just, you know, just tens of miles above the surface. But once we get the lander on there, we'll be able to see even more. Uh, we've never soft landed on a comet before. We have crashed into comets. So we've actually put a spacecraft in the direction, in the path of a comet and allowed it to crash right into it to get some kind of uh, understanding of what the comets are like. But we've never actually soft landed on one as we've landed on things like the Moon and Mars and Venus where we've actually landed on surfaces in the solar system. So this will be one of the first ones that we've had a chance, be the first one in terms of a comet that we've actually had a chance to land on and study. <coughs> so. Hopefully some more interesting things coming here uh, later this year. Questions? Yes, sir. So if this is taken like 62 kilometers above the surface of the comet, how big is the actual comet? The comets are typically tens of kilometers, so 10, 20, 30 kilometers across, meaning 15, 20 miles. So they're, they're big. They're not, little and they're not little and tiny, but they're so little mass. One of the comments they make in there is that if you were standing on this, and you jumped, you could reach escape velocity and jump off. You could physically jump off it. It has so little mass that, you're, that a jump would actually get you off of it. Right? You watch jumping here, right? you come right back down to Earth. You watch the videos of the astronauts on the moon and they can bound really far. Well here, you could actually bound yourself right off the, right off the comet. Which means that spacecraft is in a very, very careful orbit to keep it, to keep it there. It would be very easy for it to escape. It doesn't have a lot of, gra lot of gravity to hold it there. Good question. Anything else? Yes, sir. Um, once we are able to do a soft landing on a comet, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be smart to put a beacon on it so we could track its movements throughout the solar system? They could. Once something's there, right now we can. Um, and if it's soft landed there, I don't believe it'll ever take off again. So it'll be so as long as it has power, it'll be able to, you know, send. It'll be able to send signals, and we'll be able to detect it. Now, once it runs out of power, I'm not sure how it's powered. Uh, a lot of the spacecraft are solar powered, meaning if this goes far out away from the sun, it's got hardly any power. A lot of the spacecraft that are sent further out have small, not say nuclear reactors, but they're not nuclear reactors in the sense of you think of nuclear power on here. They're powered by the decay of a radioactive isotope. So it's not really you know, nuclear fusion or nuclear fission, the energy generation here. It's actually just 
nuclear materials and their decay produces energy. And they use that for like the Voyager spacecraft, which are now way beyond the edge of the solar system, well beyond the edge of the solar system actually, and couldn't begin to get enough sunlight to have, you know, sol enough solar panels were, you know, astronomical units across to be able to collect enough energy for them. But yeah, once the spacecraft has landed there, as long as it has power, they'll probably, and they can keep it active, they'll still, it'll still be able to detect it, yes. Anything else? Alrighty, well, we're going back to telescopes. So we were talking about the Hubble Space Telescope last time. And before I put this up, I already have a short video clip I'm going to show you about the Hubble Space Telescope. So let me get that settled here first, and I am going to... But it really still gives you a lot of the inf good information about it. And Hubble now, that was launched in April of... 1990, so 24 years later, plus years later, it's still going strong. Uh, they mentioned that they launched it into an orbit that was 400 miles above the Earth's surface. The shuttle usually only went up 300 or so miles, so they actually put it in a, a little bit higher orbit to get it up as high as they possibly could. That's about as high as the shuttle can go. Uh, lots of the other spacecraft and satellites are in much higher orbits than that. But it's still scheduled to, as long as it can survive, it'll still be there. It'll still be observing. Astronomers will continue to use it until it's just not usable anymore. Just have no way anymore to send up a servicing mission. Shuttles are gone, retired, and in museums. So there's no way to actually get to it again to fix it if something were to go wrong. So if anything major were to happen to with it, that would be the end of, end of Hubble. But it's already well beyond its expected life. So it's done a great job. And there is another, another telescope, the James Webb Telescope, that is planned to uh, be launched coming up in later, later this decade. So there is a replacement for Hubble, Hubble coming. So that's just one, this is just one of the images that I showed at the end of class last time of Hubble and how much detail we're able to see with it by comparison. This is a picture taken on Earth. If we look at that picture and look at the central portion, it's all washed out because of the Earth's atmosphere. If we look at it with Hubble instead, there it is, much more detail, actually able to resolve and see stars and small clusters in there and get much more detail down to the core. So Hubble's really, as they said, has revolutionized our understanding of astronomy. It's really given us a lot over the last 20-some 20 20 -some years. All right, so that was a little bit on Hubble to start off. We're looking at, still looking at telescopes in general, and what I want to give you are uh, three powers of a telescope. What does a telescope do? And the first one is the light gathering power. The telescope collects light. The more light we collect, the fainter objects we're able to see. Uh, we do this here on Earth. Right? Our pupils do this all the time. If it's real bright, they constrict down to be small so as not to flood you with too much light. When you're in a darkened room, your pupils will open very, very wide, collecting more light and allowing you to see fainter objects. So the light gathering power is very important, allowing us to see fainter objects, getting to a bigger and bigger telescope. As is shown in the image here, you have a telescope, a smaller telescope, and a telescope twice its size, see how much more detail you're actually able to pick up. There's a galaxy here. We can see the central parts and some of the outlying. But with a telescope just twice as big, 
This is still all washed out, but we're starting to see some maybe evidence of spiral arms and a whole bunch of material out here that's completely invisible just to a telescope half that size. So another telescope, another telescope twice the size would give us that much more detail. The brightness or the amount of light depends on the square of the, dia- of the size of the mirror. Let's just do size of the mirror. Does not depend, or lens if you're talking about a refracting telescope, but remember most astronomical telescopes are reflecting. So the square of the size of the mirror. So if you have a one meter telescope, it collects some amount of light. A two meter telescope is twice as big, but collects four times the amount of light. So if you had a one meter and a two meter has four times the amount of light, a four meter telescope would have four times four or sixteen times the amount of light. So this would be one times, it collects whatever light it collects. If you go up to an eight meter telescope, sixty-four times, and that means you're collecting sixty-four times the amount of light. You can see things that are sixty-four times fainter. So you can see significantly fainter objects by going to bigger and bigger telescopes with everything else being the same. So this is light gathering. So the bigger the telescope, the more light you're able to collect and the fainter objects you're able to see. That's why Galileo, even with his little tiny telescopes, was able to see stars that were not visible to the naked eye He's now able to collect more light and he could see <coughs> material that was not, simply was not visible before. He was able to collect more light. The stars were always there. He's just now able to see them. So looking at a few telescopes, I got a few tel- pictures of different telescopes shown, shown here. Uh, this is on Mauna Kea. There are the Keck telescopes. I think we looked at an image of those before. There's some infrared telescopes. You'll see a NASA infrared and a United Kingdom infrared telescopes put up there up high on this mountain in Hawaii. Infrared radiation does not like water, but it's beautiful out there in the Pacific Ocean when you're up at the top of these mountains because you're up above all the water. The water vapor doesn't get up that high and these telescopes can actually observe infrared radiation which normally gets blocked by water vapor very easily. Uh, there is the Gemini North Telescope, Gemini Twins, right? So there's a Gemini South Telescope, I believe down in Chile. I'd have to have double checked that, but I believe it is down in Chile. Uh, certainly somewhere in the southern, southern hemisphere, there's a southern telescope. And several other ones that are scattered around here. Uh, telescopes tend to be put in groups like this. Certainly easier for maintenance, especially when you're talking about getting to the top of a mountain. Easier for maintenance, easier to have people there who can work on the telescopes when there is a problem. Easier for astronomers to get there instead of sending an astronomer here and there and everywhere as you're trying to observe, uh, make observations. All the the telescopes are on the same mountain. Just makes things a lot easier and more convenient. So number of telescopes up here on uh, Mauna Kea. Another telescope big telescopes. These are all very large telescopes. You know, if you've seen an amateur telescope, if you've ever gone to a, you know, a, star, a star party observing, a lot of telescopes are 6, 8, 10, 12 inches across. You know, those, are, those are good sized telescopes. These things are many meters across. So these are, some of these are the ones that are this, 
telescope mirrors are the size of this room. So these are very big, you know, very, very big telescopes able to see a lot fainter objects. So if you're going to want to build a telescope, you also want to put it out here where the weather's nice. Right? You don't want to build it here in Harrisburg where right, you're doing solar observations. Every other day is cloudy, right? You, know, you try to get it done and when you wait till the last two days before it and it decides to rain for three straight days, you're stuck. So you try to put them up in places, up in the mountains, up in the deserts where it's a lot easier, uh, where the weather is a lot better. Another place to put them is down in Chile. This is, a, this is the, the VLT, the Very Large Telescope. Very creatively named, right? Um, it's actually a set of four telescopes down in, down in the mountains of Chile. Again, you're in the desert mountains of Chile, very, very dry, way up, above, way up in the atmosphere, above most of the atmosphere. So you can get tremendous visibility, tremendous ability to see the stars as good as you can without really getting up into space. These telescopes are much bigger than, much bigger than even Hubble. Hubble's mirror is about two and a half meters across. So, you know, one, two and a half, that's about the, the width of this front table. It's about the size of the mirror. Imagine that as a big circle going all the way around. That would be about the size of the mirror. These ones, and I should have double checked them, I believe these are either eight or ten meters across. So eight of these across, you know, go from front to back of the room and we're probably about there. Probably be able to do about eight of these or so. Going across, maybe not quite, maybe we wouldn't even be able to quite fit them in this, in this room. But that's how big the mirrors of them are. And the reason is what we were just talking about. If we have a two meter telescope like Hubble, round two, and we have an eight meter telescope like one of these, we're able to see 16 times fainter just because of the size of the telescope. Now these have the disadvantage of having to look through the Earth's atmosphere, but they have the advantage of being able to collect more light. If you could put one of these up in space, even better, but Hubble was tough to launch. I mean, it would fit in the shuttle. You'd have to be able to try to launch something. Imagine trying to launch something that's this big and get that up into a space and maintain it. All right, the second power of a telescope is resolving power. Resolving power just means how fine detail you can see, what kind of resolution you can get. The closer two objects get together, they start to blur in because of the way light works. Light works as it behaves as a wave and as a particle, but when it behaves there, if everything is close together, it just gets all smeared out. So what the resolution depends on, it depends on two things. It actually depends on the wavelength. doesn't really matter much for visible light, but it does mean the longer wavelengths are much harder to get good resolution because this number will be big. For resolving power, we want a small number. Small number is good. So if you look at something with a real long wavelength, red light is going to have a longer wavelength than blue. You're not going to have as good resolving power in red as you will in blue. Divided by the size of the telescope. So a very little telescope means you're going to get a big number because you're dividing by a small number, you're going to get a very big number in your answer. If you've got a real big telescope, you're dividing by a big number and you get a better resolution. So for resolving power, ignore the wavelength because it isn't that different between 
Red light and blue light, maybe a factor of two. The size of the telescope is really what's important. So if we have a one meter telescope and we look at a telescope twice as big, it's going to have two times the resolution. Four meter would have four times, eight meter would have eight times. Remember, this one depended on the square, the area of the mirror, so it goes up a lot faster. You can see, so compared to a one meter telescope, an eight meter telescope can see 64 times fainter and can see things that are eight times closer together, of eight times the resolution. And what that means is that instead of seeing this big blob here, where this cluster of stars may be all very close together, it can now pick out that what that really was was a whole cluster of stars. It's not that they're not there when you look at them with the smaller telescopes. You just don't have the ability to separate them yet. You need a bigger telescope to be able to go from this and really be able to see all of those individual stars. And that's the thing is just showing how waves kind of how waves work when you send those waves through a telescope and they get spread out and they kind of merge together so that you end up with this object but you don't know whether there's a single object there or two or three or four. As you get finer and finer, as you get a bigger and bigger telescope, you get more and more resolution. You can actually separate this, separate this out a little bit better. So first one is how much light you can gather, how faint of an object you can see. Second one is resolving power, how much fine, how much fine detail you can see. Now did I go? So here's an example of improving the resolution. We go from Picture one, you can see how that's all blurred out. Uh, the num numerical resolutions are just given up here. This would be really, really horrible. That would be like the really horrible, humid, sticky summer nights where everything is just dancing all, all the stars are just dancing all over the place. That's really going to blur everything out. Still a little bad here. When we get down to this one, we're getting a pretty good clear night. That's about as crisp and clear as you can get from the surface of the Earth, the last one. So same image, exactly the same galaxy. The only difference is what the resolution is like, how turbulent the atmosphere was. Here it's all washed out and you cannot see any detail, but you can certainly see enough to match up that there's this object and there's this one. You can actually match up each of the objects in the image. When you have really nice clear winter night with a, where everything's just still, then you get really, really nice images and all these stars you know, all these background stars were here. They're just washed out into the background. You can't see them. Whereas in this star, we're actually this one, we're actually getting the resolution to really be able to be able to see much more detail. We can see right into the galaxy, see lots of details even within the galaxy that we could not see in that first image. Now, how does this happen? This is just a diagram showing what is happening, what the atmosphere is doing. The atmosphere is actually blurring things, blurring the stars, and this is what we see as twinkling. These are these rays, these are the light rays coming from that star way off in the distance. And as they come through the Earth's atmosphere, all the particles are moving. So they start out coming in straight, but they just start getting jiggled around. And you see, as you get down here, they're kind of wobbling and they're coming from slightly different directions. Not a whole lot. It doesn't change them drastically. It's not going to make a star that's there look like it's over there. But it makes that star just jump around in a very small area. This, for very good seeing, very good seeing, would be about one second of arc. That would be really, really great here on Earth. So individual images, we see it here. 
Split second later it's here, then it's here. It's just jumping all over the place. When we actually look at it with our eye or take an image of it with the camera, we leave the camera open for a couple of seconds. We get all of those different images put together which gives us this great big disk of a star. That's what we see. But really the star is actually looks this tiny. If we could get an individual image of it, it would look that tiny. That's what Hubble can do. Hubble instead can sit there and take that nice long image and instead of getting the star jumping around all over the place and spreading out its light, can concentrate it right into one spot. Able to see a lot more detail because if there were two or three or four stars in here, they'd all be jumping around all over each other and you wouldn't be able to separate them. It would be just like your resolution was really, really bad. Not because your telescope was bad, it could be a gigantic eight meter telescope, but it's really bad because of the atmosphere. So there are, there are techniques that astronomers use to kind of eliminate some of this. They can actually work backwards, figure out what the atmosphere was like, and are really able to determine much better uh, what the properties of the star are, get approaching what Hubble can do. So that's one of the reasons you want a new telescope up there. You want something even bigger that is able to you know, improve on what we've learned with Hubble. Is the telescope oh, sorry. is replacing Hubble, is that bigger? It will be bigger, yes. It is going to be significantly bigger. And I didn't get the exact numbers. I'll have to see if I can pull those up for next time. Before I go on, this is the solutions, but let me give you the third power, which I don't even put on the slides. That shows you how important it is, right? It's not even on the slides. That's magnifying power. This is what you hear for you know, a little cheap telescope. If you're buying a telescope at the store, it magnifies things 50 times, 100 times, 500 times. That's what they usually push. Magnifying power is the least important of the three. Why? You want to magnify, you want to see, see it nice and big. Why is this the least important? It's least important because it really depends on the other two. Magnifying is meaningless if you've got very little light and a very blurry image. Let's start with the blurry image. Let's work upwards. If you've got a blurry image and you magnify it a hundred times, you get a big blurry image. It's not going to show you any more detail, but all I'm doing is blowing up the image. So if it was blurry because you had a very small telescope, you can put a real small lens on it, you can magnify that thing, you know, 100, 500 times. But if it's all blurry, it's not going to make any difference. You're still going to have it completely blurred out. So you'll go from a little blurry image to a big blurry image. Yippee, right? We got a big blurry image to look at. It doesn't help you much. The other thing that you can do, you need, is light. If you don't have the light gathering power, you can magnify it and if you take this little image that was very faint, I got this little faint object here, and I go ahead and magnify it, you know, many, many times, I'm spreading all that light out. So I'm taking this little nice bright image, I'm not gaining any light. Magnifying just takes that same light we had and spreads it out. So if it's a very faint image and we make it bigger and spread out the light, it disappears. Eventually, if you magnify it enough, it's going to disappear. You're not gaining any more light by magnifying things more. If you had 100 photons striking in this little circle, okay, might be nice and bright image you can see. If I make this circle 100 times bigger, now all of a sudden I'm, I couldn't draw it 100 times bigger, but if I did it 100 times bigger, 
I still have those same 100 photons. I didn't add any more light. This adds more light. This adds more detail we're able to see. All this does is magnifying things. So if you've got great light gathering power and great resolving power, you can magnify things as much as you like. Right? If you want to magnify the moon, moon gives off a lot of light. If you want to magnify the moon, you can magnify that like crazy and get to see a lot of detail. If you're looking at a faint galaxy, same telescope, look at a faint galaxy and try to magnify it. You're going to put a bigger, uh, different eyepiece in that will let you magnify more and all of a sudden the thing disappears. It's still there. It's just magnified so much that the light is spread out so far you can't even see it anymore. So magnifying power is the other power of a telescope, but it is the least important of them. So if you're looking at buying a telescope, you really want to look at the biggest telescope you can afford. Right? You don't want to just get, you know, look at a telescope that says it magnifies things 500 times. If it's a little tiny one, you're going to have these problems, which, won't, which really won't help you. Biggest telescope you can afford, you know, if you're, you're really wealthy and you want to buy yourself a two or three meter telescope, you could make a great telescope for yourself. But as big as you can get, so if you can afford, you know, if you're looking at a, a four inch telescope and an eight inch telescope, you know, you might want to, if you can afford to go to the eight, you're going to be able to see more detail. Other thing, if you're thinking of buying a telescope to go the other way, make sure it's something that you'll actually use. You get people who go and buy a real big telescope and then it's like, it takes me an hour to set it up. I don't want to just haul it out to set it up to look at the moon tonight. I'm not going to bother. So you also want something that's very easy to set up. So you want to look at, a com you want to look at the combination of everything, but don't just get you know, fooled by magnifying power. You know, 500 times, that's great with the little telescopes that you can buy because you're losing out on the other, other things you have here. Okay, so that's the last of the powers. I just wanted to include that since I really didn't put it in the slides here. Um, solutions, what are we going to do? We've got all this blurring of the atmosphere. We want, to get, we want to get rid of that blurring. We want to be able to see details in the objects. And what we could do, there's several different things. First of all, we've already looked at some of the images. We've got a whole bunch of telescopes on mountaintops. Right? Atmosphere thins out as you go up higher. Right? If you go to Denver, the Mile High City, you know, it can be harder to breathe. You don't want to go up there. If you've lived down, down at sea level all your life, you don't want to go up to Denver and run a marathon all of a sudden. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not used to that, that level of uh, atmosphere. It's a lot less. So if you can get up to the top of these mountains, you can be above most of the atmosphere. The less atmosphere you're looking through, the less of that blurring you're going to have. Deserts especially. Why? Because you're getting up above, above all the water vapor. So there's no water vapor, there is, it's much better. So that's why a lot of telescopes are found out in remote places now. We have telescopes down in Arizona, we had telescopes out in Hawaii on top, on top of the mountains, we got telescopes down in the deserts of Chile, Australia, uh, tend to be more remote places than where they used to be a hundred years ago. If you recall, I told you about the last refracting telescope I think on Friday, Me a meter in size, it's outside Chicago. It's still there. Lights outside of Chicago probably weren't too bad 120, 120 years ago. Lights outside Chicago now, not too good, right? You're trying to, trying to look towards Chicago. I mean, you think Harrisburg's bad, right? Forget it if you're trying to look for anything there. So that's one of the other reasons that we actually put telescopes much further out is because, first of all, the weather's much better, right? Take them down to Arizona, you get 300 clear days a year instead of 60 clear days a year. I don't know. I'm just making up numbers there, but to get the point. The other thing we can do is put telescopes up in space. Now we don't have to worry about weather at all. Right? 
Doesn't rain very much out in space. Doesn't snow, no rain, no snow, no clouds. You're up above everything, so you can observe all the time. No bad nights, no bad days. You can observe any time of day or night that you want because you're up above the atmosphere. The only reason that it's, the sky is blue out there is because of the atmosphere. If we got rid of the atmosphere, other than all of a sudden suffocating ourselves, we could see, we'd be able to see stars right now. They're there, they're visible, but it's all the sunlight that's getting scattered around the atmosphere that brightens everything. So putting telescopes up in space allows them to observe all the time, whether it's night or day, for the telescope. There is no, there is no difference. As long as you're not looking too close to the sun, you know, if the sun's there, you know, you've got to annoy, there's an area around it where you don't point just to avoid damaging the telescope. But other than that, you're good, you can observe everything else you need to. The other thing that we use is active optics. Now we actually can take mirrors, instead of being a big heavy piece of glass that we used to use, one big solid, you know, thick piece of glass. We've got a mirror that's meters across. It's going to be, you know, this thick. It's going to be, you know, a couple feet thick in the middle. We can't do too much with that. Well, technology now, we can do that same mirror very, very thin and control it by computer. Couldn't do that 100 years ago. Couldn't really do that very well 50 years ago. We can do computer control and we can actually adjust the shape of the mirror. So you might have seen, I know I've seen a couple on the photos of the day, but not recently, where there is a telescope that sends out, in fact I think it's the VLT, the one that we looked at earlier, that actually sends a laser out into, into the atmosphere. Sends a laser out, excites the molecules in the upper atmosphere, and then detects them. It makes an artificial star. It observes the properties of that starlight as it comes down through the Earth's atmosphere, detects it, and then it can make adjustments. To, it knows what it was supposed to look like because it made it. Then we can adjust it and make the other stars, so we can eliminate the Earth's atmosphere. We know what the Earth's atmosphere was doing to this star that, would, that we created, so it was doing the same thing to all the other stars at the same time. We can eliminate then the atmospheric effects. So that's what we call aptive optics, and they can actually deform the mirror. So instead of having a mirror perfectly shaped, you deform the mirror to take into account what the atmosphere was like. And that can take things to account like temperature, how the mirror is pointed in, in space, right? You've got this big, big floppy mirror. Well, if you start turning it sideways, it's going to flop around. If you have it on these piston controls, you can hold it exactly where it's supposed to be and make adjustments for the atmosphere. So that allows resolution on Earth to now become comparable to what Hubble was able to do. So we can actually, some of these large telescopes can now, with these new technologies, can actually achieve uh, resolutions that are as good or maybe even a little better than what Hubble has been able to do in the past. All right, we'll, we'll get a start on radio astronomy and we'll pick up here on Wednesday. Uh, that was a little bit on optical telescopes. The next type of telescope to be developed were the radio telescopes. They look very much like a reflecting telescope. So here's an example of one here. Big giant reflecting mirror, collects radio waves from the, from the sky and reflects them back up in this case to a little detector that's up here. And then that goes down, wired down to a control, which is depending on the telescope, could be right below it. Uh, more likely it's actually a building off to the side where the astronomer works. Now with a radio telescope, you can't look through it, you can't see anything because our eyes aren't sensitive to radio waves.
we can detect them, we can make receivers that will detect how, how many radio waves are coming, but we're never going to actually be able to see radio waves. They are all prime focus. Prime focus, if you recall, was just bouncing them off and then coming right back up to the focus and that's where your detector is. So this is the telescope reflecting all of that and here. They can also be made tremendously large. Um, big radio telescopes can be things like, well, the biggest one that you can steer like this is about 100 meters across. 100 meters is about a football field, right? 100 meters about 100 yards, actually a little bit more. So you can imagine, you know, taking a football field and steering it around. That's a pretty big telescope. Why can we make a radio, why don't we make an optical telescope that big? Well, the problem is that the, the good thing for radio astronomy is that the wavelengths are so long. Uh, short radio wavelengths are two or four or six centimeters. You know, this size, something we can see. If your wavelength is this long, it doesn't care if your telescope isn't perfectly smooth to that wavelength, right? So if you have little pits that are millimeters in size, it doesn't see them. In fact, some radio telescopes use a mesh. <coughs> they don't have to fill in all the gaps because they still look perfectly smooth to the radio waves. Wouldn't look perfectly smooth to optical waves which have to be uh, smooth down to nanometers, right? I can't get my finger, I gotta squeeze my fingers as close as I want and I still can't get them you know, down to nanometers apart. So you have to be incredibly smooth there. These don't matter if you've ever had a satellite dish, right? You can get a little bit of snow on it. You can have leaves on it. It still works. It still will be able to detect signals. That's because it's not as sensitive to those little deviations in, the, in it as a, as a mirror would be. So you put a leaf on a mirror, it's going to have trouble detecting, detecting things. So we can make them much, much larger. And I said there are some that are, the largest one that you can actually steer is 100, is 100 meters across. I don't know if I should have an image of that. In fact, there's, well, there's the largest, largest one, even bigger. Said the largest one you could steer was 100 meters across. The largest one ever created is 300 meters across. So, you know, can't do it, right? One, two, three football fields stacked side by side put across. This one cannot be steered, though. It's actually no way to support something that size, 300 meters across. That would require a lot of support mechanism. So this one is actually hollowed out into the valley of the mountains here in Puerto Rico. So you hollowed it all out, smoothed it out, put the telescope lining in there, and let the Earth support it. Right? Earth is nice and strong there, can easily hold this up, and you actually have a radio telescope that is uh, 300 meters across. So three football fields across. I don't think there's a, there's a person here on the side uh, you know, checking it out. You can see how they have you know, snowshoe type things to avoid them damaging the telescope itself as they're walking on it and experiment. But that's like one little tiny section of what we're seeing up here. Really a tremendous telescope. Could not be able to steer it, so it can only look at things that are straight overhead. So pretty much anything that passes straight overhead from this location is able to be seen. You can look a little ways off from straight overhead because you can adjust where your detector is. You can move this back and forth a little bit. But it's never going to be able to turn something and look at something that isn't almost straight overhead. So a limitation there, but the advantage is now you've got a telescope that you know optical astronomers you know love 10 meter, 12 meter telescopes. Talk about 15 and 20 getting bigger and bigger. 
but here's 300 meters. Now, optical telescopes aren't even close to getting to this level. So this is the largest one that's ever been created, largest single dish. But if we go back here, I told you not to worry about the wavelength too much for right for at that point. Now the wavelength makes a big difference. If we're looking at uh, several hundred nanometers versus centimeters, we've jumped this wavelength up tremendously and that means the resolving power is getting a much bigger number. We don't want big numbers. We want little tiny numbers for resolving power. Makes resolving power very, very bad. So really bad angular resolution. So even that 300 meter telescope, many times larger than any optical telescope we have, its resolving power would be much worse. So astronomers have a way to come around that, get around that that we'll talk about in a little bit. What are the advantages? Why do we want to look at radio astronomy? Well, first of all, we can observe all the time. Radio telescopes here are going right now, observing. The sky is real bright in optical light, but it is not bright in radio waves. So it's nice and dark. Again, as long as you don't point close to the sun, the sun is a radio source, so it would cause interference. But if you just point out there in space, well away from the sun, there are radio telescopes that observe 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Doesn't matter if it's cloudy. Radio waves come right through the clouds. Doesn't matter if it's raining. Right? If you've got a satellite dish, you can still, as long as raining, ignore thunderstorms, but just regular rain. Unless it gets real, real heavy, comes right through. Snow, again, unless it's blizzarding so much, you can still see this, this radio waves will still get through. So, thunderstorms are bad. That's an electrical discharge in the atmosphere. That will cause interference. Real heavy rain, real heavy snow will cause problems. But for the most part, they can observe every day of the year, the whole day. And there are telescopes that operate on that basis. They just constantly observe and go over and over and over again. The other big, big thing that I want to mention is that the observations are at a completely different wavelength. We're seeing completely different things than we're looking at when we look at optical. The image on the, on the right is Centaurus A. This is an active galaxy. Uh, in fact, one of the closest, in fact, the closest active galaxy to us. If we look at it invisible, ignore all this blue and yellow and red stuff for right now, this is what the galaxy looks like. Big fuzzy patch of a galaxy with this large dust lane going across it. But that's what we'd see if we looked at it in the optical light. If we looked at it in radio waves, now ignore that part that we just looked at and look at just the false color part of the image. That's what we'd see if we looked at radio waves. We don't see the rest of this galaxy. We only see this portion here, jet of material up to the top and a jet of material to the bottom. Either one of those tells you something about the galaxy and that it's unusual. Putting them together, we get to learn a lot more and really get a better understanding of what's going on at the, on the galaxy. There's a black hole down here. It's spiraling material into it and spewing some of that back out as jets of material. That shows up as radio waves. There's something other unusual going around with the galaxy. It's got two types of galaxies kind of mixed together. And we'll look at this a little bit more when we get towards the, towards the section on, on galaxies. So I am going to go ahead and stop. I'm pretty sure I'm, yep, that's what I want to stop. So I'm going to stop there. I'll leave that up in case you need to get anything else off of it. And then I talked about the poor angular resolution. What I'll start on on Wednesday is how we get around that poor angular resolution. There are ways to make even bigger telescopes than what we see by combining 
telescope signals together for radio telescopes. So we'll look at that on Wednesday. Any questions? Alrighty. <coughs>